0: Forged documents with Kay's signature on them that were brought to the attention of investigators by her daughter Cheryl are what revved up a case that had never really gotten very far out of the gate after a disastrous initial investigation. In 1986, 14 years after Kay went missing, Gilbert Hine petitioned the court in Manatee County for an order to authorize the sale of a property that was in both his and Kathleen Hine's name. Now remember, his assertion to police was and had always been that she had run off with another man, which would mean as far as he was concerned, she was still out there somewhere, living it up, living the high life. Yet he petitioned the court so he could sell property in her name under Florida Statute 747.052. That statute defines the term absentee as any resident of Florida or a person who owns property in the state of Florida who has disappeared and is presumably dead or went missing due to their amnesia, mental derangement, or any other mental illness. Kay being deceased had never been alleged by Gilbert Hine, nor had he or anyone else made assertions related to her having amnesia or any kind of mental illness. This petition was entered on September 5, 1986, and it was granted by Judge Gilbert Smith exactly a week later. It does not appear that the judge required any information to substantiate how or why K. Hine had gone missing, and the man sitting on the bench employed not a single ounce of intellectual curiosity that would, oh, I don't know, let's say have him speaking with police or pulling a record or gathering any sort of information from any source other than Gilbert Hine. He simply signed away K. and her future heirs' rights to said property on the word of a husband who had always told police that she ran away with another man. No big deal. This is, however, a perfect example of how when one corner of our justice system fails their job, it allows another corner of the system to perpetuate that injustice. Because had an active investigation into the matter of whether Gilbert Hine was responsible for his wife's death ever transpired, the judge would not have been able to so easily sign away their joint property to her husband and the possible person who killed her. But that wasn't the only problematic thing with this court filing and the subsequent order that was granted by the judge. Florida Statute 747.052 very clearly states the following as requirements, among others, that are needed by the court in order to grant this type of petition. I'm going to quote directly from the Florida Statute. The names addresses and ages of the spouse, children, mother, father, brothers, and sisters, or if none of these is living, the next of kin of the absentee. Also the name, address, and age of any other person who would have an interest in the property or the estate of the absentee if she or he were deceased. Also, notice of the hearing on the petition shall be given to all persons named in the petition, by registered mail or certified mail, with return receipt requested. The judge shall hear evidence on the question of whether the person alleged to be missing, interned, beleaguered, etc., is an absentee as defined by 747.01, and on the question of whether the action in question should be authorized. Any person interested in such proceedings may intervene with leave of the court. The order submitted by Gilbert Hine said that Kathleen Hine had one brother, who lived in the state of Ohio, whose residence and address were unknown to him. That brother's name, to the best of his recollection, was Philip Folk. He told the court that Kay had no other brothers or sisters to his knowledge, and her mother and father were deceased. Gilbert said Kay had no will to his knowledge, and her sole heirs were him and one son. That would be Charlie. So as it turns out, only one son was even contacted by the courts about this hearing, despite the fact that Kathleen had multiple other children. There's also no mention of her brother Stanley Folk, who was most certainly alive at this point. The names of Kay's required family members were not revealed to the court by Gilbert Hine in the documents, and legally, they would fall into the category stated as any person interested in such proceedings. But I guess if you're not made aware that a particular proceeding is happening, You can't be present to argue your case, can you? And that's what Gilbert Hine was counting on. Kay's family was given no notice of the proceedings, and I presume that if they had been, they would have told the judge that she disappeared under suspicious circumstances, and they may have pointed their fingers directly at Hine in open court. To find someone legally an absentee, you must also find the following under Florida Statute 747.01. Any resident of this state or any person owning property herein who disappears under circumstances indicating that he or she may have died either naturally, accidentally, or at the hand of another or may have disappeared as the result of mental derangement, amnesia, or other mental cause shall also be an absentee within the meaning of the law. However, that whole at the hand of another would have been the sticky wicket here. I can't imagine any judge would look kindly upon being asked to hand over property of a homicide victim to the person alleged to have committed that crime. Had Gilbert tried to pull that stunt around 2003 or 2004, when his name was all over the newspaper again, I don't think any judge would have signed that order. But these documents and the fraudulent deeds were not uncovered by Kay's children until much later. In 1994, around the first time that they reopened the case, the investigator followed up by calling the title company that insured the title to a piece of property in question, and they were given the case number I just read from as proof that Kathleen Hine had not been seen or heard from since January 14, 1972. So we have fraudulent documents with inaccurate information on them being relied upon by multiple entities. On another document, it was learned by investigators that a relative of Gilbert's new wife had legally witnessed the signing of a forged deed in 1980. While all that was left, or perhaps ever existed, of the original incident report from the 1972 investigation is only nine pages, there were subsequent instances over the decades where police looked again at the case. In a July 1994 Tampa Tribune article, staff writer Judy Hill wrote this in an article titled Mother Left Little Behind Except Doubts. Cheryl Boros doesn't give up. For more than a year... The Minnesota resident has been writing and calling area media folks and law enforcement with poignant appeals to help find her mother. If she couldn't get any help in Florida, she was going to try with law enforcement in her state, in Minnesota. And I can verify that both Cheryl and her sister Betty tried for years to keep the public and law enforcement interested. Cheryl's handwritten notes alone and her letters to Manatee County Law Enforcement make up more pages in the total report that I received then the original file and subsequent supplemental investigative documents combined. She was relentless in the face of having door after door slammed in her face over a span of decades. She printed up flyers and she had her husband, who was a trucker, distribute them along his routes in the United States and Canada. But Cheryl always believed, as did Betty and everyone else that I asked, that what remained of their mother was much closer to home, very likely on the property that she so enjoyed along with the remains of her beloved animals that her husband had tossed into a bonfire. In one of her many letters sent by Cheryl to the Sheriff's Department, letters in which she would recount every possible detail and fact that she had gathered in the previous years, she said that she believed it was Gilbert himself who floated that story about his wife being shacked up with some man in a Holiday Inn, out of state. That story would have been floated by Gilbert to Kay's daughter Betty, which would then send her chasing her tail while also having people criticize her tenacity. In the end, that information was wrong, and it wasn't Kay, exactly like she had said. But a tip that involved a specific hotel and a specific room number seems intentional on the part of the tipper. I think it's very possible that Gilbert said something to Betty to lead her to believe that his wife had run off with that particular man. After all, it was his assertion all along that she'd run away with a man. He started that story and Gilbert also knew that Kay's daughter Betty had been giving law enforcement officials hell, so much so that he apologized for it when investigators came to his job to speak with him. He made her the problem, and that is classic deflection. I got the following quote from an article by Deb Lavoy on CMS Wire on the topic of marketing. A well-built narrative clarifies, compels, and convinces. It has both emotional impact and Rational substance. This applies to narrative building generally. When you're trying to build a narrative about something that occurred, which actually didn't, your hope is to clarify by having an answer to any question you assume will be asked of you. In fact, investigators are trained to look for that when someone they're speaking with seems to have all the answers prepared ahead of time. To create a compelling and convincing narrative, you throw in information or even cherry picked facts that will add to the credibility of the false narrative that you're trying to sell. It also helps if, while you're doing that, you have already created a credible persona for yourself. In this case, a juvenile court worker who takes foster kids into his home. The cherry on top of that scenario would be to have, as an antagonist, someone who might not stand up as credible by compare. The report notes that Kay's daughter Betty had cussed out the desk clerk and made repeated calls to investigators. Well, yeah, that's what happens when you know someone's lying and the people whose job it is to uncover those lies aren't even taking you seriously. You get upset. You tend to say things. I can perfectly relate to that scenario. The thing is, though, the squeaky wheels are the ones that get the grease, and Kay Hines' investigative report is a perfect example of that. Every time one of her daughters fired up another media, phone, and or letter-writing campaign the investigators gave the file another look. In fact, I would go out on a limb and say that those two women are the only reason this case got the attention that it did. But all that work didn't necessarily endear them to the investigators working on the case. I noted, more than once, different investigators while documenting letters that they had received from Cheryl or documenting conversations with Betty, where it felt that the family member's information was perceived as more of a nuisance to investigators than helpful. And that's unfortunate. But if I'm being fair, I can also see the hurdles of law enforcement in those early days. Witnesses were afraid to talk about Gilbert Hine out of fear of retaliation. That certainly doesn't explain away the fact that police did not ask to search his home or speak to the kids who were there that day. There's a clear lack of that initial investigation to push Gilbert Hine at all at a time in the case when the most evidence could have been uncovered. Once he left the state, and in the process rented out his property and made sure that nobody would be given access to search it, Gilbert Hine seemed very far out of reach. But in the end, it turned out he was. At one point, police tried to contact him by phone, but his new wife told investigators that he was ill and near death. This was many years before he died, likely another ruse to keep investigators at bay. And all along the way, in her letters, Cheryl would point out inconsistencies in Gilbert's story, like this: In 1993, Hind claims he took her to the fairgrounds and dropped her off. Don't make sense. Neither she or her car were disabled, and they never left their two young boys at home alone, 20 miles out in the country. That observation makes two points. First, Gilbert would not have needed to drop Kay off at the fairgrounds in the first place. She had her own working vehicle, and it was her habit to take herself on errands. In fact. She had been to the same fairgrounds the previous day to look over the area where they would be working with her friend. She drove herself on that occasion. Additionally, Gilbert said he dropped her off, but he never made any mention of why he didn't go back and pick her up. There was no plan in place with the woman that she was supposed to meet that day to bring Kay home, and that's another huge inconsistency. If Gilbert took her, common sense says he would have to go pick her up when she was finished. That never happened. But police never bother to circle their wagons around that point. They never thought to ask Gilbert, Well, if you took her, why didn't you pick her up? They never asked that question. And they should have got it in writing from the friend that she was never scheduled to drive Kay home that day, because she wasn't. All throughout the case, there are very simple questions that could have been asked that were not. It's clear that if she had left the house that day, Kay would have taken her own car. And as her son John David said, taken him with her that point is another one that's supported by the woman that she was supposed to meet at the fairgrounds Robina had her children as well as other 4-H children with her at the fairgrounds that day and Kay would have done the same that was the plan around 1994 police finally interviewed witnesses that the original investigation either missed or didn't thoroughly question the first time Robina lastly was the woman who had made plans with Kay to meet her at the agriculture fair that Saturday. She said they arrived and waited at the gate, the only entrance, for almost two hours. She said Gilbert Hine never dropped Kay off at the spot that they had agreed to meet, and she said she even had her kids looking for Gilbert's car, but he never showed up that day. Robina told the investigators that early on her late husband had told her not to talk to detectives when the incident occurred. Because of that 1994 newspaper article, other people came forward. Beverly Skelton contacted police to tell them that Kay had told her she was afraid of Gilbert Hine. She recalled an incident where Kay told her she was scared he was going to kill her and bury her under one of their barns. This conversation came up while the two women were discussing Beverly's divorce, which she was going through at the time that they spoke. This actually gave police a time frame for that conversation. The Skelton divorce proceedings started in November of 1969 and were finalized in January of 1970. So this conversation about Kay fearing Gilbert and him wanting to kill her occurred a full two years before Kay even went missing. During that 1994 reinvestigation, Lieutenant Hackle contacted Gilbert Hine to set up a time to interview him. During this call, Mr. Hine said, oh, he'd be glad to talk to him because they were, in fact, coming to town on vacation for a few weeks. Two days later, the lieutenant received a call from a lawyer to say that he had been retained by Gilbert Hine and that he would call back to schedule the meeting. A week after that, the lawyer called back to say that Gilbert Hine would not be speaking with law enforcement, so if they had any future questions, they were to speak directly to the lawyer himself. The lieutenant noted at the bottom of that report, "'At this time, I have no reason to investigate Mr. Hine any further.' I will talk with him if the chance comes up, but I have no reason which would compel Mr. Hine to talk to me. Throughout that 1994 investigation, Cheryl brought up multiple angles she thought police could use to approach Gilbert. The questionable disposition of land that had been in Kay's name, his sexual offenses toward her, and at that point, police seemed completely disinterested in the deeds, and that may have been because it was a civil matter. In the case of his touching her, Cheryl was informed that due to it being only through outer garments and having occurred around 1958, the statute of limitations would have expired. Police noted in the report, quote, Cheryl was attempting to get something on Gilbert Hines so we could force him to talk to us. Of course she was. And guess what? Police do this all the time. It's why so many traffic stops are made. You find warrants and other outstanding issues when you pull people over. When police want to talk to someone, They will look for any minor offense that will get that target into a room with them so they can have a little chit-chat. Unpaid traffic fines, probation violations, outstanding warrants, literally anything that they can use to approach you, they will and do to get you to talk to them. But once Gilbert Hine lawyered up, everyone's hands were tied. But Cheryl kept at it. The day after Gilbert Hine refused to speak with police, Cheryl spent an entire day at the clerk's office pulling up old land records. Of this, the report notes, quote, She gave me several documents which was recorded at the clerk's office. Some had the signature of Kay Hine on them, but were dated in 1980, eight years after she had disappeared. One of the documents had a notation that Kay had been declared dead, but two had the signature of Kathleen E. Hine on them. These documents had been notarized by a Charles Richard Walker, and a note that these people had appeared before him and signed these papers. Well, someone appeared before him and signed her name, but it wasn't Kathleen Hine. This new information led the investigator to track down Charles Walker, who, the report notes, worked at a dairy called Moires, M-O-I-R-E-S, on the upper Manatee River Road. He confirmed that he had worked as a notary in the 1980s, and the officer at that time did not tell Mr. Walker what documents specifically he wanted to discuss. They just scheduled a time to meet. It would have been great to ask the notary who it was that stood before him and signed Kay's name on those documents. Investigator Nancy Schaff did a database search in 2002 in an effort to speak with the man who had, quote, notarized at least two questionable documents for Gilbert Hine. Unfortunately, due to the common name, the search came back with multiple possibilities and there is no indication in the report that anyone went further down this investigatory trail. Why it was dropped by the 1994 investigator is unclear also. In addition to questions that were never asked, there were a significant number of balls dropped in this case. That last example being one. There are no early interviews with any of the children that lived on the property at the time, including Kay's older son, Roger. There's no indication that police ever entered the Hine home to search it. Previous renters of the Hine home were never contacted to ask about the bullet hole and if it existed prior to when they moved in the home. Thanks to Cheryl, I spoke to one of these previous renters named Ann, and she remembered that bullet hole. She also remembered a very disturbing call from Gilbert Hine. Here's Ann. I lived in the house down in Parish,
1: and I moved back to Tennessee. Okay, uh... Not long after I moved back, my telephone rang, and I answered it, and it was Cheryl, uh, uh, his daughter.
0: Oh, Cheryl Hines' daughter. Sharon. Sharon.
1: Yeah, Sharon. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. That's okay. I get a mix up. (laughs) That's okay. And uh, she said, uh, "I'm calling." Uh, to because she knew that I sold Barbie dog clothes, and that was the pretense of the phone call. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she said, I understand that you sold Barbie dog clothes, and I said, Yes, I do. And she said, I didn't get a chance to uh, see you before I moved, and I said, Yeah. Uh, what's this phone call about? And and then she ha- got quiet. And she said, there's someone here that, she got off the subject, and she said, uh, there's someone here that wants to speak to you. And I said, someone that wants to speak to you, me? And she said, yeah. And then Gibbert got on the phone. And my boyfriend was there at the time, which he's dead now. We got married, and he's dead now, so he can't verify what I'm about to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he looked, uh, whenever Gilbert got on the phone, he said, if you know what's good for you, you'll quit helping Cheryl uh trying to find out what happened to her mom. Hmm. And I said, and I i mean, I just went quiet. And my husband-to-be at the time, he said, Ann, your face is white as a sheet. What, what's going on? And I motioned for him to be quiet. I motion that I was telling him after I got off the phone and he said now if you know what's good for you he said repeated it he said if you know what's good for you you better quit helping her
0: wow how do you and he
1: hung up he hung up
0: and do you remember what around what year this was
1: Ninety-seven.
0: And had you ever had any interaction with Gilbert Hine prior to that?
1: No. No.
0: But but you were living in a home that his, he owned. Yes.
1: That, and I did not know that I was living in the house where Cheryl's mom disappeared. I did not know that until my phone rang one night and my husband at the time... He answered the phone and he said, I'm sorry, lady. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, uh, I'll put my wife on the phone. And that's whenever, that's
0: the first time I ever talked to Cheryl. Oh, okay. And
1: she told me the, that I was living in the house where her mom disappeared. And I mean cold chills running from the top of my head to my toes, mm-hmm. up and down, while I was talking to her. And, and that was kind of scary.
0: And at that point, you you allowed her to come and, and look at some things on the property, is that right?
1: Yes, only you ever didn't know that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's probably good. <laughs> I would have made a good detective back then,
1: you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we found a lot of her mom's stuff. And that's whenever, you know, we, we you know, not knowing there was a bullet hole in the bedroom wall. About as big around as you—you you could stick your finger back in it.
0: And it was in the room that—that that Cheryl said was her mother's. Yes. Uh huh. And was it high up or low? Where do you remember it was on the wall?
1: Uh, I say, I say, I'm five foot seven, and I say uh, about head high, almost head high.
0: And. Obviously, you're saying that hole was there when you moved in there. Nobody in your house ever discharged.
1: Yes, yes okay. the hole was there. All right. But I didn't think nothing about it. See, this was way before I even knew about what went on out there. Mm-hmm. There was two ponds back there that had alligators in them. I still believe that her mom was fed to the alligators or they burnt her body up
0: hmm and that's cruel yeah it is it's terrible it's terrible for those kids not knowing and that's
1: uh, yes and that's cruel to know going through life like Cheryl has not knowing what has happened to her mom
0: after that call from Gilbert um you continue to live there I assume
1: no, no, this happened up after I moved to Tennessee. Oh, well, he called me up here.
0: Oh, so you didn't even live on the property when he called you.
1: No. No, no, no.
0: Well, that's strange. I can understand him doing it when you live there, like to tell you
2: to keep uh, her off the property. Uh,
1: uh, that's why I can't understand. How did he know that I was saving Cheryl?
2: Hmm.
0: And so how long had it been since you moved out when he called you?
1: Well, I moved up here in 96.
0: Okay. In
1: April of 96.
0: When Cheryl came to visit you at the house to look around the property and everything, you said you found some belongings of Kay's. Do you remember what they were?
1: Her uh, mom's wigs, some uh, letters, and clothes. Now, if her mom had left, why didn't she take all that?
0: Where were they left? Where in the house?
1: In a, <laughs> in a room that was, the way the house was built, there was a room of They used it for storage, uh, Gilbert and them. Mm-hmm. This was where all of that stuff was. Well, curiosity got the best of me and Cheryl. I told Cheryl about it one one day, and uh, so that's whenever her husband brought her by and dropped her off um, in the semi, and, uh, and we got to, and so it was easy to open
0: the door. <laughs> Termites was eating the place up. <laughs> Is it, a, was it a room? <laughs> It was a room attached to the house or separate from the house?
1: Yes, yes.
0: And you had never been in it before?
1: No, no, no.
0: It was locked?
1: Uh, Yes, but like I say, you just had to just kind of push on the door and uh, uh, termites was eating the door frame up, so uh, we just... Kind
0: of pushed on the door. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is definitely some. But, but
1: I would, they didn't know, Gilbert and his uh, daughter didn't know I was at home one day. And I used that room next, next to that room as a sewing room. And I was sitting there sewing, and they drove up one day, and they jumped, both jumped out and ran into that room. And they was hunting a key. I don't know what kind of key it was, but they was desperate trying to find a key.
0: They came into your house while you were there?
1: No, into that room.
0: Oh, so that room, it wasn't accessed by the inside of your house. There was an outside. No,
1: uh, no, it had its own door.
0: (gasps) Okay, so this is a room added onto the house that was for storage when they lived there. I see. Yeah. And you never yeah. went in there before that? You never checked it?
1: No, no, no. I was uh, kind of afraid to, you know.
0: Huh, I, it's strange.
1: They told me that uh, they used that for storage, and I didn't think nothing about it.
0: How many, <laughs> how many years did you live there?
1: How many years did I live there? Yes, From ma'am. 91 mm-hmm. to 96
0: do you was there a renter before you that lived there yes
1: uh oh i can't even think of his name that's how i found about the place uh i lived up here at the time and uh my husband at the time wanted to go back to florida oh he put in the uh, wanting to go back to florida And I said, okay, put me on the bus and I'll have my daughter, she lived in Palmetto. And I said, I'll have my daughter to meet me and uh, let her help me find us a place. And uh, so whenever I got down there, she said, mom, are you ever in luck about a house? She said, Bob, Bob, I I can't think of his last name. Oh, and uh, she said he's getting ready to move out of the house in Parrish, and if I'll take you up there and let you look at the house, so I thought, well, the rent in Florida was reasonable. I, I snatched up on it, and. He was growing
2: pot in the closet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what caught my eye, was the pot in the closet. Yeah, a whole big bunch of it. (laughs) And uh, so he said, well, you'll have to excuse me. And I said, as long as you get that stuff out of here, (laughs) that's up to you.
0: Uh, Right. Because
1: I said, I don't fool with that stuff. I never have. Drugs use drugs or nothing it's bad enough that I have to take medication let alone <laughs> use drugs you know
2: Oh
0: boy
1: <laughs> So <laughs> So uh, uh, I said okay uh, And uh, he gave me the uh, her, her phone number and I called her and I told her that Uh that I was, would
0: take the place. And she said, okay. So and, that was, uh, that was Sharon, you're saying? Sharon. okay.
1: Sharon. And uh, she said, okay. And she said, well, when will you want to move in? And I said, well, uh, uh, you gotta have time to get uh,
0: Bob out. <laughs> Bob and his plants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and whether they knew uh, he was raising pot in there, I don't know. And I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't going to rat on him. No. You, know. you don't remember Bob's last name?
1: No, I don't.
0: What? And I, 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 uh, he's dead now, though. Okay, well, that helps. I, I, I don't know have to that. Try to track him I do, down. I do know
1: he's dead. I think he got killed in a motorcycle accident. Mm. He had a motorcycle, and I, th- I think he got on, the motor-
0: on motorcycle. So when you were um, renting, you dealt with Sharon. This is Gilbert's wife yes. after Kay, her yeah, daughter. I took
1: the rent money to Sharon.
0: So she lived out there in Parrish?
1: Yeah, she lived just right down the road from me.
0: Did she? Did they ever give you any instructions about like not digging on the property or anything like that, what you could and couldn't no, do? Mm, no,
1: no. No, I kept the property up because I was in good health then and I kept the yard up and because
0: my husband wouldn't do it so well that's a you have an interesting part of the story Gilbert calling you when you didn't even live there is awfully strange and that's very suspicious um but he's he everyone that I spoke to really did say he was sort of a bully so it's good that you didn't have to deal with him I guess it's and her calling you under that pretense of of something about dolls and then putting him on the phone Uh,
1: uh, right right that was kind of scary here I was way up here 680 miles away and why would he they do
0: that. Yeah, it's strange. I don't...
1: They put a scare tactic in, you know.
0: Well, he must have thought you knew something that, or, you know, how could you be helping her except for, you know, the only thing I can think of is that you knew were that, that stuff that was in that storage room, and you were there that day. Right. They never knew that you were there that day when they were hunting for that key, and... um. No, no they didn't know, because I parked my car
1: in the back of the house and uh, they didn't know I was there that day. They was panicking cause they could not find the key. They was in that room throwing stuff around. I went uh, tiptoed and went to the wall and all that was separating the wall. My wall and that wall was paneling. And I put my ear up against it and they was throwing stuff against that wall. And I thought, I I hope that penland holds up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my! God. So they don't. You don't know if they found what they're looking for.
1: Uh, and she said, "I know that key's got to be here. We got to have that key." And I thought, "Now, what kind of key is it that is so important? They got to have it."
0: Yeah, maybe a safe deposit key or something. You know, a bank yeah. safe deposit. What year was this, that this occurred? Uh,
1: Ninety, ninety-five, I guess. Ninety-five.
0: So maybe like a year before you moved out? I
1: moved in uh, the February of ninety-six.
0: When they came to look for that key, had you and Cheryl gone into that room yet? No, uh-uh. Okay, so is that kind of what... And that's whenever I mentioned the key to her.
1: And we even looked for a key. We found a bunch of keys, but they was that they looked like door keys, you know, house keys.
0: Was everything in that room her mother's, or was there other junk and stuff too? No,
1: there was other junk. But uh, a lot of her mother's wigs, clothes, letters. Cheryl took some of the her mother's stuff. The letters and stuff. Now, what she did with it, I don't, know. I
0: don't know. I, I think I have those because um, I, I sent for for the full, whole police report, and she had given them copies of it, and so I have copies of yeah. those letters. Well,
1: there was a detective, a uh, man and woman from uh, Bradenton, come out to see me in Arcadia whenever I moved to Arcadia about this.
2: Mhm.
0: What did they ask you?
1: same questions
0: you know oh about the phone call and the the key yeah
1: about about different stuff
0: well I appreciate you telling me that story and it'll be very good for the listener to hear that for the podcast because I had read it in the report but hearing it from you is much better and you know I think that call is important to the story yeah so I appreciate you talking to me today and taking the time to do that Uh,
1: well uh, well Mom, it's all I got. I
0: understand. Me too. The 2003-2004 reinvestigation seemed to be the most fulsome of these examinations. Some of that, obviously, is that each reinvestigation piggybacks off of information the last investigator collected. But while most of what Lieutenant Hackle did was answer Cheryl's letters and phone calls and document them, Chief Inspector Ed Judy and Lead Investigator Nancy Schaff were putting together everything that they had for the ICE team the group of individuals that I have mentioned in previous seasons, a cold case team that looks over Manatee County cold cases to decide whether they have enough to work with in a particular case. And let me be clear, that's why you and I are here today. I hate to be the bearer of a spoiler alert this early in the final episode, but at no time did any of the teams working on the case feel they had enough evidence to put together what a prosecutor would consider a good case against Gilbert Hine. Too much had not been done during that first investigation. Also, we have no body. We don't know where Kay Hine is to this day. Second, we have no crime scene because law enforcement never searched the home, and they only did one search of the exterior property. After Gilbert Hine died in 2015, this case effectively died in the water. There was never any indication that Kay Hine was still alive. However, they had no solid proof that she was dead. But with the only person law enforcement ever focused on, her husband now deceased, there's little reason for time and resources to be put into a case where nothing would be gained, even if they had enough evidence to say, yeah, we are certain beyond a preponderance of evidence that Gilbert Hine killed and disposed of his wife, Kay Hine. There was and is nothing more on the criminal end to be done. But in the interest of at least getting the facts out there, let's listen to what witnesses who didn't initially tell their stories remembered. Because if that is all Kathleen Hine gets, she deserves that. Every bit of the truth and facts that are out there to be revealed. The first thing that I noticed about the 2003-2004 investigation is that law enforcement set up a meeting with a Bradenton Herald reporter to propose a story be written about Kay's case. The investigators even documented driving by the home of Clyde and Eileen Hine, Gilbert's brother and sister-in-law, to make sure that they still live there and they went so far as to confirm that they subscribed to the Bradenton Herald. This tells me that they wanted them specifically to see this article, which would eventually be titled, New Evidence Revives 32-Year-Old Case. The article was written by Brian Hass, Bradenton Herald staff writer, and it began with this line, which is clearly directed at a specific target, Clyde Hine, and that line read, If They Could Only Find Her Body. Ed Judy, head of the ICE squad, said, quote, If I find her remains, it will not take long to make a criminal case. And the article did not pull any punches, nor did it make a secret of the fact that their target was Gilbert Hine. Directly beneath the cold case, investigators, quote, the reporter said this, quote, Her husband says she's dead. Gilbert Hine said his wife was deceased on a 1986 deed. He has since deeded nearly $200,000 in land to himself, that he and Kay Hine once jointly owned, one of the triggers that reopened her case. Several circumstances have convinced investigators that Kay Hine's disappearance was suspicious at best. Deeds prepared by her husband eight years after her disappearance bear her signature. A missing 38 special revolver. A frantic call from Kay Hine to one of her daughters the morning she disappeared. The investigator was now comfortable saying in a public forum that those details were part of why Kay's disappearance was now considered suspicious. Further, he said that finding her body would end one family's 32-year struggle to find the truth. To me, that suggests that they had a pretty good idea where they might find that body, and that would be a place which would leave little doubt how she came to be there. By this time, Gilbert Hine was 85 years old and had long since stopped cooperating with police. He never allowed anyone to search his home, and he never gave a full witness statement about the timeline of that day. Police finally spoke with Kay's son, Ronald Frost, the one that had given that damning statement to police back in 1972, when he basically repeated everything that Gilbert had said. Now, with the person that he believed to have killed his mother, old and essentially no longer a threat, Ronald Frost shared details with them that he had never shared with police before, By this time, he was 66 years old. He told them that he was at the Hine Ranch the night before Kay went missing, and again the next day. When they asked him to describe Gilbert as a person, he said, One time when he made a rent payment to him, he was one cent short, so Gilbert made him write a check for a penny. Over the years, Ronald, or Ronnie, to those who knew him, worked for Gilbert Hine on numerous jobs on properties owned by him, including the orange groves. He remembered one incident while he and Gilbert were working on repairing pump equipment in an orange grove and something didn't go as planned. He said Gilbert completely lost control, throwing things and cussing. He said he had never seen anyone go so completely out of control as Gilbert had that day, and he believed that if someone had tried to intervene in the situation at that moment, that person would have been badly injured or killed. Kay's son Ronnie also mentioned financial motivations. Gilbert had told him once that with his Navy pension, once you're married to a woman for more than 10 years and you get a divorce, the ex automatically gets half of that pension. And Gilbert told him no one would ever get any part of his pension. Several weeks before his mother went missing, Kay told Ronnie that she was going to divorce Gilbert. She said she did not want any of his money or property. All she wanted was the five acres located off 675, where she and the two little boys could live. But she told Ronnie she wasn't going to bring up the divorce until after the county fair, because she didn't want to put the kids through that ordeal until after the fair was over. This tends to lend credence to the idea that she and at least one of the boys were supposed to be going to the fair together, but Kay didn't want to start an argument with Gilbert before their trip to the fair, and according to what Robina had said, they were to meet her and her children at the fair entrance. Kay's boys never ended up in a vehicle to go anywhere that day, but what did end up in her vehicle, according to her father, Harold Folk, were the display items that she needed for the fair that day. Ronnie confirmed that his father had told him this. He said that he had seen those things packed in her car when he was at her home. Ronnie told investigators that he himself was at the Hein Ranch the day before the incident, Kay again told him that she was going to file for divorce from Gilbert at that time. On this visit, he noticed a septic tank and a septic line was dug up outside, and even part of the floor inside the home was also dug up. Ronnie said Kay had told him that they were having septic tank problems. The next day, when he returned to the house, he said it looked like a tornado had gone through it, like a big fight had occurred. But most importantly... Ronnie said the next day, the septic tank line and the floor inside the house were all filled up and repaired, overnight. He said after the disappearance, Gilbert tried to get him to sign a paper, stating that his mother had disappeared on other occasions and gone off with men, and that she had left the residence with an unknown man. Ronnie said that when he refused to sign it, Gilbert told him to get the fuck off his property. Now, it bears mentioning that he didn't tell the police any of this when they spoke with him after Kay went missing in 1972. In his initial statement to police, Ronnie parroted back what Gilbert had said about Kay being a drinker and running off with another man. But it also bears mentioning that the property and home Ronnie lived in were owned by Kay and Gilbert Hine, or more specifically, once Kay was missing, Ronnie was living on property controlled by Gilbert Hine. I was told by multiple people in the family that he was afraid Gilbert would kick him out of his home and that he held that property over Ronnie's head for years and he ended up essentially paying for it twice because after Kay died, Gilbert never counted any of his previous payments against the balance. Finally, for some reason, in 1986, he deeded the property over to Ronnie. But in hindsight, you can see why he did it. He essentially made Kay's son a party to a document that included false information. That Gilbert was not remarried, despite having been married to Virginia Carroll in Texas five years earlier. It also gave the day before she went missing as the date of her death, despite Gilbert's assertions to the police that she did not die that day. She just ran away. I believe Gilbert signing this property over to K-Sun was a deliberate way to use him as a way to lend credibility to his fraudulent assertions. He needed a trail of documentation that erased Kay's name from everything, and he created that trail with a series of documents to include putting his new wife's name on John David's birth certificate as his mother. And one thing I want to mention, in case it's not clear, is that John David's last name is Hine. He believed for much of his life that he was adopted. So he was never in the same category as the foster children that lived on the ranch, because they told everyone he was their child he was adopted and he was given the hind name. In the days that followed Kay going missing, Ronnie said whenever he tried to talk to Kay's young sons about what happened to their mother, they would immediately become terrified and they would not talk about it. In this 2004 investigation, police did finally interview John David. There's not a single interview with Charlie. John David said that he was 11 at the time and he remembered Gilbert telling him that if anyone came on their property without their permission, whether it be the law or otherwise, get the gun out and shoot them. But when they pressed him in 2004 on what he remembered specifically from that day, John David told investigators that he thought it was possible he had witnessed his mother being killed, but he had blocked the image out. He didn't remember the events of the day at all, but he did remember his father bringing another woman into the house soon after. He said that Gilbert's relationship with Virginia Carroll was much different than that of his relationship with his mother Kay, and he didn't physically abuse her. This led him to tell investigators that he thought it was possible that she may have been present during the incident when his mother went missing, and therefore had something on Gilbert to keep him in line. That is an interesting theory, but even if she wasn't present when something occurred to Kay, it's possible she was the one who signed documents that bore Kay's signature That or her daughter, who would later be the one who collected rent for Gilbert Hine on his rental properties. That's the woman Anne mentioned showing up with Gilbert and rifling around that storage room for a key one day when they thought she wasn't there, overhearing them from the next room. And I want to mention something specifically so the deceit here is crystal clear to anyone listening. In order to get something notarized, you have to show proof of your identity via a document with a picture ID. That is a driver's license, state ID card, U.S. passport, military ID, or some other state, county, or government ID. That would mean that whatever ID was presented by the person standing in as K. Hine to sign that document was also fraudulent documentation. Gilbert and whoever was in on this plan with him had to go that extra step to create forged identification for K. Hine. They wouldn't have been able to get that notarized without that. John David told investigators that his father was abusive toward him, regularly and for no apparent reason. He described Gilbert as a very brutal man with a bad temper, and his memories of his mother always included her having bruises and casts on her wrists and arms. He felt that many of her injuries occurred when she intervened during one of his beatings while trying to protect him. Hearing and reading that was really sort of heartbreaking to me because I had to wonder how much guilt John David feels about that, whether inwardly or outwardly. We know that a lot of these complex emotions play out in ways that are not necessarily linear, but certainly feeling in any way, as a kid, like you could have been part of the reason the mother that loved you was being hurt, is a burden that no child should have to bear, and no adult should be required to spend a lifetime working through. When I spoke with John David, he was matter-of-fact about the abuse and his thoughts on what occurred with his mother, Gilbert, and the very little that he'd heard secondhand about his biological parents. He comes across as steady and fairly unmoved, yet I still felt something that left me worried that this process in bringing it all up again was pushing a bruise, and even if he was willing to have that bruise pushed, it's something I feel regret about, and I feel that way a lot when I cover these cases. We can't ever know what someone else is going through, even in situations where that person is able to articulate those feelings well. It will still be received by each individual through their own lens, made up of their unique life experiences. My first urge in situations like this is to protect the person from future pain, even when I know that the path to getting answers will always be paved in emotional tripwires. DNA and genetic uh, DNA, it's come leaps and bounds it is nowadays it's very possible to do your dna upload it onto a couple of the websites and come back with hits of people you're related to
1: yeah so i've been meaning to do that for quite a while but it's always you know always not not doing it but yeah i really should that may may make a it may tell me everything
0: it could but you need to decide if that's what you if you want to know that you know and that's a personal decision that's not for me or anyone else to say, because then you have to, you know, once you open up that can of worms, then, you, you know, it's open. Yep. Investigators also spoke with Kay's brother Stanley during this time. He said that he was 100% sure that his sister was dead. He also mentioned Ronnie telling him about going to deliver that rent money the day before his mother went missing, and at that time, Ronnie had heard Kay and another woman screaming at each other. He said he was told that Gilbert was in the background hollering for them to be quiet because they had company. Stanley also said that within a couple months of Kay's disappearance, a woman moved into the home. And he remembered that within a few days of Kay disappearing, Gilbert burned a shed on the property. Stanley told police that for days after his sister went missing, their father would wait until Gilbert would go to work and then he would sneak around the property, trying to find some trace of his daughter. Having left them for the last of the witnesses to be questioned, investigators then paid a visit to Clyde and Eileen Hine to obtain their statements, something that had never been done up to that point. Eighty-seven-year-old Clyde Hine, the closest of the Hine brothers to Gilbert, told investigators that he had lived in the Bradenton-Manatee area all his life, except for his time in the military in the 1940s and a couple years in there in Texas, where he had lived within several miles of his brother Gilbert Hine. He said that he missed home and there wasn't enough to do in Texas, so he returned. As backstory, Clyde told investigators that during the 1930s, his father acquired large amounts of land in East Manatee County, in the area of Rye Road, His father drilled wells for local farmers who had no cash at the time to pay for his services, so the farmers paid his father by giving him land in the area from their farms. When Clyde was asked about Kay Hine and the circumstances surrounding her disappearance, he said that his brother told him he took her to the county fair and she never returned. Clyde then added that Kay had run out on two previous families and left children in both instances. The investigator pushed back telling Clyde that in those instances, she always recontacted family to let them know where she was. Don't you think it's strange that there's been no contact made over 20 years? The investigator asked. Clyde Hine had no reply. The investigator then asked him what type of person Kay Hine was, and Clyde's reply was telling. He said their father, who lived several home sites to the south of his and his brother's homes, had told him that from his front porch he was able to see Gilbert's driveway clearly and he had seen several unknown subjects in vehicles driving up to Gilbert's house when only Kay was home, implying that Kay may have been having affairs with other men. The investigator then asked Clyde, Isn't it reasonable to believe Gilbert may have caught his wife having an affair and he could have hurt her or killed her? Again, Clyde had no response to that. He changed the subject and started again talking about his father being a well digger. Clyde did tell the investigator, however, that Gilbert shouldn't have put that signature on those deeds. That wasn't right. So we can at least thank Clyde for admitting that Gilbert Hine had forged signatures on those deeds. Notably, that would have probably been enough, along with said documents, for some sort of civil action on the part of Kay's children should they have chosen to sue Gilbert's estate at that point. But it seems as though her kids didn't have that information at the time, and to their credit, they all seemed much more concerned about getting to the truth about what happened to Kay than worrying about who got what land. As for Eileen Hines' interview, here's how that went. She told investigators she had seen the recent news article in the Bradenton Herald, New Evidence Revives 32-Year-Old Case, and she thought it was disgusting. Eileen denied ever discussing any forged deeds with Cheryl, and she also denied telling Cheryl that Gilbert's first wife, someone named Penny, had gone missing. Cheryl had actually made recordings of these phone calls with Eileen, which were turned over to police when they were made, although where those went in the ensuing years is anyone's guess. The investigators that were doing the reinvestigation couldn't find them, despite the previous investigator mentioning that he had received them from Cheryl. Eileen went on to describe Gilbert's new wife, Virginia Carroll, as, quote, the best thing that ever happened to him, a very nice lady. Virginia Carroll was Eileen approved, apparently. Eileen told investigators she really didn't even know much about Kay because they didn't speak much and were never close. She told investigators that Kay probably did run off. And then she said perhaps the most ridiculous thing in the report. She said that even though Kay had a washer and a dryer, she would often hang a red towel out on her line, insinuating that this was some sort of signal to someone that Gilbert wasn't home. It's absolutely absurd, and it tells you more about Eileen Hine than it does about Kay. Something that did give me a chuckle, though, Eileen said that Gilbert was pretty smart about properties, and she would never do any land deals with him without an attorney present, a nice way to say that her brother-in-law needed to be closely watched when any land deal was on the table because apparently he wasn't above even taking advantage of family members. Eileen told investigators that she didn't believe Gilbert was capable of murder and denied going to their home on the day that Kay disappeared. She insisted that she was a Christian woman and she loved her Lord and if she had any information on this case she would have come forward. And then she ended the interview by saying that she was mad Kay Hine walked away from her kids because she herself wasn't able to have children. This case was troubling to me for a variety of reasons. I don't think anyone looking at it with a reasonable, unbiased lens can say that whatever happened to Kay wasn't done by her husband Gilbert Hine. There's no evidence that anyone had the motive, means, or opportunity other than Gilbert Hine. And motive is a big one here. He stood to gain a lot with her death, and no one else did, and boy did he make sure of that, land that her kids would have rightly had a claim to upon her death, if her death had been proven to be at his hand. Cahine did not run off to be with another man, and abandon her two young sons, her adult children, her animals, her home, and everything she cared about. She didn't walk off without her prescription sunglasses, medication, the wigs she needed because she had no hair, her clothing. That just did not happen. While what we're left with is a family with a lot of questions, I don't think who killed Kathleen Hine is one of them. Still, questions do linger, and with cases like this, cases where there's no hope for any kind of legal justice, knowing those questions will linger forever is a burden that some will have to forever shoulder. I find that the families I work with often know that going in, and what they want from me and law enforcement, and anyone else who can give it to them, is simply the truth. They want people to admit what they do know. The foster home situation? Well, I have to admit, that's what pulled me in. It's what made me want to cover this case. I remember gasping in shock when Cheryl told me that John David had essentially been stolen. I do wish we knew where Kay Hines' remains were, so that her family could at least have that. But I also hope, for John David's sake, that if he wants it, he learns who his biological parents are. There's a family out there somewhere who lived through the trauma of having their baby child stolen from them, and as a mother myself, I cannot fathom what that must have felt like. You know, like I said, it really depends on how you feel about... Going into all doing all that because it opens up can of worms. But if you know, I'm I'm of the I'm the type of person. Well, I've
2: never done
1: anything wrong. Yeah, you know, none of this. <laughs> is, you know, I'm not. Yeah, you know, you know, it doesn't bother me at all because you know I'm not the one that did any of this. You know, I'm, right? You know, exactly. So I, I don't have a problem doing any of this because you know I'm just I'll tell you anything you need to know I can remember because you know I have nothing to hide and I'm not going to protect. Yeah. You know, I just the truth. That's you know. That's all there really ever is, is the truth. If it hurts people, it hurts people. But
0: you know Well, I wasn't really even referring to anyone else. I was referring to you. If it I, I don't know you well enough to know whether something like this opening up that can of worms will will be emotionally upsetting to you. I always wanna I always wanna try to think about the people that I'm talking to and realize that you know, this is a, just an interesting story to me, but it's your life. And I can't, I don't know you enough to know whether doing something like this will cause you more harm. And that I never want to do that. So that's why I don't want to feel like I'm saying, do go, go do that. Because you need to think before you do it, if it's something you want to do, you know, you're the only one that's going to have to live with that I don't, you know, and I'm not saying it's anything bad doing the DNA. I'm just saying once you start contacting people and you have to be ready for people that don't want to give you answers or rejection or whatever comes with all of that, that, and I, like I said, I don't know you. I don't know how, it's one thing if I was talking to a family member and was able to counsel them through that emotionally, but I, I can't do that with you because I don't, I don't know who you, you know what I mean? I, I'm on, a, on that level. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I don't, I just don't want you to, you know, you've already had a shitty life, let's be realistic, as far as that part of your life goes. I don't know what happened after that, but you had some, a pretty shitty, growing up, formative years. So I don't want you to do anything that, you know, compounds that now, at this stage of the game, when you're so far removed from it.
1: Mm-hmm. So. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, but I'm, I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a detective at heart. Yeah. I, mean, I gotta, you know, I gotta, you know, I wanna get to the end of it, get to the, to the
0: bottom of this whole thing, because M- it's not, it's not complete. My life isn't complete without this. Before he does DNA and potentially finds family, John David could have a vision in his head of who they might be and how they felt about him being gone from their lives. You'd certainly have to wonder why no one fought for you or came back for you. And once he opens that can of worms and knows from which family he has come, he can no longer do that. What he's envisioned in his head his whole life may be better than the story that he finds. It's a very emotionally vulnerable place to be. In the same way that the search for truth in any unsolved death case can be uncomfortable for loved ones at best and emotionally destabilizing at worst, the search for one's biological lineage is equally peppered with emotional landmines. And these are the things that advocates like myself need to understand and respect. We should not be leading the charge. We should simply be there to assist them in that journey, should they decide to make it. If you have any specific information about the whereabouts of Kathleen K. Hine, please contact the Manatee County Sheriff's Office at 941-747-3011 extension 2526. And if any of this story sounds familiar to you, or you have information about the biological parents of John David Hine, you can contact me at deckerjenny at gmail.com, and I will forward your information directly to him. That's d-e-c-k-e-r-j-e-n-i at gmail.com. There's also a way to get a hold of me through the Down and Away Facebook page. My email and private messages are always open for any questions or concerns. I want to thank Cheryl and John David especially, as well as Anne for speaking with me, and the other people that I interviewed who did not want their names included in the podcast. I am always so grateful that people are willing to take the time to assist me in my research, particularly in these very delicate, very human stories. Original music this season by Lauren Marie and Tom Lively of the Houston-based duo Million Stars Missing. Lauren also read Kay Hines' biographical story in Episode 3.